0: Lord, in this world in which everything seems to be coming loose, we are so glad that you are the rock under our feet. And we pray this morning that by your spirit and through your word, you would equip us so that more and more we might know what it means to build our hope upon the rock that is you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. The singer and songwriter Bob Dylan once said, in a real sense, the only thing that truly unites us is suffering, and suffering alone. We all know loss. Which of us has a heart that hasn't been crushed and broken by the weight of the world in some way? A song by Carolyn Arens captures a similar idea in a profound way. She writes, everyone sits by their own pool of tears. I think all of us would agree that there is a huge gap between the sort of life that we would like and the sort of life that we have. We all want a life of comfort and ease, a life of freedom from pain and loss, a life of sureness and certainty, a life of peace and purpose. But what we experience instead is a life of struggle, of financial hardship, of, of, of feeling the burden of responsibility, managing the complexities of life, a life of constant relational friction and tension and alienation of emotional and physical illness in ourselves and in those that we love, of the relentless losses that come with age and death, of loneliness and addiction, of wrong choices resulting in painful consequences, a life of closed doors and barred paths and dead ends. And I think just as we would agree that there's a huge gap between the sort of life that we would like and the sort of life we have, I think we would also agree that there's a huge gap between the sort of world that we would want to live in and the sort of world in which we actually live. We want a world in which peace and unity prevail. A world free of injustice, but ours is a world of wars and rumors of wars of corruption and abuse of power and unjust systems, a world of natural disasters of floods and earthquakes and fires, a world of short-sighted use of natural resources and uneven distribution of financial resources, a world of prejudice and discrimination, a world of illness and death. That gap between how things are and how we wish they were is filled with our tears. It's filled with our loss and our longing. It's filled with our pain and our disappointment and our sadness. It's filled with our fear and our anxiousness and, at times, our despair. But for those who are followers of Christ, that gap between our lived life and our longed-for life is filled with hope. And that's our focus this morning. The hope that fills the gap between the profoundly painful present and the glorious future. There is always hope. Give me your sword. What is your name? Hollis, son of Hamelmale. The men are saying that we will not live out the night. They say that it is hopeless. This is a good sword. Aleth, son of Hammer. There is always hope. We're in a series called Rescued from Ourselves. A study of chapters 7 and 8 in the book of Romans, in which we are exploring some of the incredible gifts that God has given us in the face of some of the profound challenges of the life that we are called to live. We explored over the last two Sundays the gift of God's Son and the gift of God's Spirit. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at the gift of his love for us. Today, we look at the gift of his hope. Sometimes in the face of life's difficulties, it can be hard to hope. Hope takes Practice and resolve and determination. The week before last, Sharon and I had the chance to go out to San Diego and get a little bit of time with our daughter, Corey, and her husband, John Matthew. And then we borrowed their car and drove up the Pacific Coast Highway, just the two of us, and had a wonderful time together. At the end of the second day, uh, we hiked for six miles around along the coastline at Point Lobos And then just as we were getting back to the car, we realized uh, that the sun was setting on the other end of the point and we might have a chance to see it before it set. So we dashed across the, the middle of this peninsula all the way out to the point just in time to see the sunset. And then we made our way back to the car as it was getting dark and we climbed in hot and sweaty from this sprint that we did to catch the sunset. And as soon as we began to drive... Our windshield began to fog up. So we turned the vent to defog and turned up the fan. Nothing happened. We cracked the windows. That did nothing. We ran the windshield wipers. Nothing. We wiped off the inside of the windshield. It immediately fogged up again as we're now driving in the dark on winding roads on a mountain pass only slowly did the dash begin to clear. And then just as we started making some progress, the dash fan began to act up. It started making this loud, and I mean loud, hammering noise. It sounded about like this. So the only way that that clicking would stop is if we turned the, the, uh, on the air recirculation button. And then that clacking of the fan would stop, but the button wouldn't stay down. So we had to, I had to hold it down as I was driving in order to keep the clacking from happening. And then I started getting creative. I used the end of my sunglasses case. I used the bottom of a water bottle. Then I used my finger again, getting more and more tired. And finally, I just started for 45 minutes until the windshield finally got clear enough I began to alternate between these two annoying extremes. First, holding the button down, then flipping the the vents back to bi-level, and dealing with the ruckus of the fan, and then back again. Eventually, the windshield cleared enough for us to be able to stop these shenanigans. And I was able to drive the rest of the way, finally focusing on what was on the other side of the windshield instead of focusing on what was on the windshield. And the next day, I went to a gas station. I got some windshield cleaner. And I wiped out the inside of the windshield, which finally solved the problem. It is so easy for us to focus on the hard, to focus on the fog of uncertainty that is right in front of us. And to lose sight of the good and the beautiful that is on the other side of the heart. Hope is what keeps the window clear. And learning to keep the window clear is what this passage is all about that we're looking at today. A simple definition of hope, at least in the way that the the world around us uses the word, is desiring or expecting something to happen in the future. In the face of the huge gap between things as we wish they were and things as they actually are, we face two really significant temptations, I think, when it comes to our desires and our expectations for the future. Our first temptation goes like this. I have given my life to Christ. He assures me that he desires my best. Well, I know what is best for me, and I desire I expect my life here on this earth to go the way that I want it to. So I ask, in other words, I demand or I insist that God change my circumstances now in this life in order to meet my expectations and my desires. That version of hope, of expecting happiness on my terms now, is a hope that is bound to crush us and disappoint us. Because as long as it is life in this fallen world, God assures us suffering will be part of our experience. The second temptation is more subtle. It goes like this. I have given my life to Christ. He assures me that he desires my best. Well, I know what's best for me. But I also know because God has told me that I can't expect my life here on earth to go the way that I want it to go. So I ask, that is, I demand or I insist that God will fulfill my desires and expectations in the life to come. Happiness on my terms in the life to come is this second version of hope. Paradise, a life of joyful bliss just around the corner. All of my postponed desires from this life satisfied in the life to come. I'll live in the mountains or by the ocean or wherever I love to be here and I'll go flying every day or fishing or bowling or shopping or whatever it is that I love to do and I'll be reunited with all of my loved ones again and I'll be rid of all of my enemies once and for all and so on. Pick your favorite version of the life you've always wanted on this earth and just uh, send it out ahead of you. Happiness on my terms in the life to come A hope that is likewise bound to disappoint us. Both because it fails to take into account what God's ultimate redemptive purposes are, as we'll explore. And also because it makes no sense of the suffering that we experience in this life as we wait for that life to come. Ultimately, the flaw in both of these false versions of hope is that they center on us. Not on God. God doesn't really figure in either of those versions. My hope is the future on my terms. So what this passage calls us to is another understanding of our hope altogether. And it goes like this. I have given my life to Christ. And it is for God to determine what is best for me. He created me. He redeemed me. He truly knows best. So I invite God to fulfill his desires and his expectations for my life both in this life and in the life to come. Which leads us to the jarring and exhilarating nature of New Testament hope, which is nothing less than the hope of glory. Which brings us to the start of this passage. Open, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We'll start by looking at verse 17, which is the last passage, the last verse in the previous section. And that passage ends on this hopeful but uncomfortable note. Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Here's how the New Living Translation puts it. And it's uh, the entire New Living Translation uh, version of the book of Romans is excellent. I commend it to you. It says we are heirs of God's glory, but if we are to share his glory, we must also share his sufferings. This is a radical, and if we are honest, a radically uncomfortable idea. According to Paul, our present sufferings are connected in a significant way with our future glory. The hardships that we are enduring and what we are becoming are linked Paul stops and he elaborates now, using the next 13 verses to explain what he means by that. Before we follow him there, I think it's really important that we anticipate three key themes that will weave uh, together in this passage and really, I think, help give give it its meaning. The first theme is the will of God being fulfilled. The idea of everything being done according to the will of God and in keeping with his purposes. That theme comes through explicitly In verses 20 and 27 and 28. But it also shows up implicitly in every verse in this passage. God is our creator is determined upon fulfilling his purposes in everything that he has created. And Paul reminds us that God created human beings with a will of our own. But that his greatest desire is that our will and his will would become one. Not by us insisting that God would do our will, but by our relinquishing our lives to God and saying, your will be done. The second theme that runs through this is the idea of the children of God being revealed. That theme is found here in verse 17, also in 19, 21, 22, 23, and 29. Obviously a key theme. Whenever Paul speaks about God's children in this passage, he also speaks of them being revealed, of their kind of coming into the light. And what he means by this revelation of the children of God is not just that we're suddenly going to show up finally, but that God's purposes in us will be completed finally. Our full family resemblance to God our Father and to Christ our brother won't be complete until history comes to a close and God ushers in the new creation and finishes his redemptive work in each of our lives. And the third theme is this idea of the glory of God being unveiled. More specifically, this amazing idea of our sharing in God's glory in the future. It's introduced here in 17. It comes up again in verse 21 as Paul talks about the, uh, the glory of God related to creation as a whole. And then he talks about it in 18 and 13 when he talks about the glory of God in relationship to us as individ- individual children of God being glorified. Now, you probably know this, but when the word glory is used to describe God himself, it it refers to the the fullness of God's divine majesty, all of his attributes together. It is God being revealed as the God he is. But when the word glory is used to describe his creation, it doesn't refer to something that is intrinsically glorious in us. It it refers instead to the way that God's divine glory, his majesty, is put on display in and through the creation when his creation perfectly fulfills its God-given purposes. When everything in this world and everything in our lives reflects God's design and his intentions, that will bring glory to him. That's what it means for us to be glorified. So knitting these three themes together then, Paul says that God's purposes will be fulfilled in us and God's glory will be revealed in us when, when what? Well, as we'll see when we look at verse 29, Paul tells us that that will happen when we are finally conformed to the image of his son. God's purposes will be fulfilled in us and God's glory will be revealed in us when we, his children, become like his son. And that's the work that God is doing in us now through our suffering, chiseling us and sculpting us into the likeness of Jesus. And that's the work that Jesus will carry through to completion in the future when Jesus comes at the close of his age and he finishes his redemptive work. Becoming like Jesus. That is the heart and substance of Christian hope. How closely does that line up with the substance of your hope? So let's listen now to this passage and hear how these themes all come together. I'll just walk through it quickly. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yes, Paul says, this life is painful, extraordinarily so. But the benefit far exceeds whatever cost we may endure. You can't even begin to compare the sufferings that we are experiencing in the present with the glory that will be revealed in us in the future. Now Paul pauses as he thinks about where he's going next. Let me show you, he says, how what God is doing in each of you individually, bringing your life into line with his will, is like what God is doing in creation as a whole. So in the next four verses, Paul describes how creation as a whole is groaning to be restored to God's original design for it. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Many of you know know that our daughter Molly and her husband Dylan are expecting their first child, a son, within the next two weeks And our son, Brandon, and his wife, Christy, are not far behind expecting the birth of their third child, a girl, in March. So what does it mean for those four that they are expecting? What it means is there is not any other reality in their lives but that coming birth. D-Day, due day is the only date on their calendar, there's only one thought in their minds. That coming child. And everything else is seen with reference to that child who is about to be revealed. Paul says creation is expecting. There is a day coming when the children of God will make their glorious appearance. When Jesus returns and draws human history to a close. He will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And he will complete his work of, re- in re- of redemption in creation, Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In these verses, Paul points back to an event that happened in the dawn of creation. Genesis chapter 2 describes the paradise that God created for humanity in which he himself was present and near, enjoying relationship with the man and the woman that he created. But then in chapter 3, we learn of humanity's mutiny. It's rising up against God and the consequences that touch every corner of the globe, Adam and Eve were ushered out of paradise and out of God's presence. And ever since then, creation has been at odds with God's original design. With thorns and thistles growing where once there was a lush garden. Peter Kraft says, what happened in Eden may be hard to understand, but it makes everything else understandable. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. How is it groaning? The headlines give us a tally every day of this earth's groans. Yes, we can still see the the hand of God in the beauty of creation. But the world is crying out to be put right. And once again to reflect in its every dimension the glory of its creator. It waits eagerly, longingly for that coming day. Now Paul shifts his focus To individual followers, which is really his main point in this passage, to show us how we, too, groan in longing for God to see that the entirety of our lives will reflect his presence and purposes. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, we too are groaning, eagerly awaiting that day when Jesus will finish in us what he began in us and every part of our lives will reflect his transforming touch. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do, we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And now we come to the Christian definition of hope. As opposed to merely desiring or expecting something to happen in the future, such as Purdue becoming number one in the Big Ten. (laughs) Christian hope is knowing that something will happen in the future. Hope is the patient confidence that God's loving purposes will prevail in the end. Let me say that again. Hope is the patient confidence that God's loving purposes will prevail in the end. I love Julian of Norwich's spiritual classic, Revelations of Divine Love, in which she captures this posture of New Testament hope perfectly when she writes, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. As we groan under the weight of a broken world, longing to become the men and women that He created us to be, the Spirit of God groans on our behalf. That is, He intercedes in accordance with God's will, praying that God would use our present circumstances in a way that fulfills His future purposes for us, and that is, forming Jesus in us. It is in that way, toward that end, that God will work good in all things, in the difficult and painful things, as well as in the joyful and easy things to form Jesus in us. The very familiar verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now we tend to hear three parts of this verse and miss the fourth critical part. God works for good. In all things, for those who love him and are called. But we overlook often this last phrase, according to his purposes. Which describes the manner in which he is working good. It is crucial that we understand what this promise means for God to work for our good in all things. Because if we don't rightly understand it, it's a false and empty promise. God promises to work good in all things according to his purposes. Not according to our preferences. Not according to the way that we would like to see things go. But according to what fulfills his purposes. And he makes those purposes plain in the next passage. We know that God works good for, uh, works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew he also predestined. And... Here is that purpose, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God's intention is nothing less than to make us little Christs. Every one of us sharing a family resemblance, not only with the father, and not only with the son of God, but also as a result with everyone else, who bears his name with our brothers and sisters. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So here Paul restates the will or purpose, the design or attention of God in our redemption. From where we sit in the present, only three of these are finished realities. The fourth one still awaits its fulfillment. But from the perspective of God's eternal present, these things are so sure that they are seen as completed realities. He predestined us, choosing us to be his children. He called us, awakening in our souls and drawing us to himself. He justified us, redeeming us from our sin and reconciling us to himself. And finally, one day he will glorify us. The glory of the creature is the glory of God reflected in the creature who perfectly reflects and fulfills his intention for their existence. And that means making us like Jesus. In the masterful book, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien describes Gandalf speaking with Frodo at Rivendell after Frodo has recovered from a wound that almost has taken his life. Said Gandalf to himself, He is not half through yet, and to what he will come in the end no one can foretell. But he may become like a glass filled with a clear light for eyes to see that can. How might God be using the wounds inflicted upon us in this fallen world as a means by which he is doing nothing less than making us vessels of his light? All of which brings us back to where Paul began. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the demanding and the dynamic nature of Christian hope. Not only can I be patiently confident that one day God will complete in me what he has started, making all things new in me. So that I reflect his original design, just as he will make all things new in this world, so that it too reflects his original design. But I can also be patiently confident that God is using all of the all that is painful and costly now toward that end, transforming me, transforming us more and more into the likeness of his son as Paul promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he writes, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Ours is not the small hope that God would change our challenging circumstances but the grand hope that God would change us through our challenging circumstances into nothing less than the likeness of his Son. And that's why James writes this in James chapter one. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Not because there's anything joyful about the circumstances, but because of how God means to use them. For you know, he goes on, that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let me conclude by reading a remarkable passage from a chapter near the end of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, a chapter that's called Counting the Cost, in which he captures in an amazing way the essence of this dimension of the Christian hope. This is what he writes. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand that he, what he is doing. He's, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, and you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature Pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. And that is the basis of our hope.